have a jump drive. I don't know how long it'd take, though. Well, let's don't worry about it. Let's don't worry about it. We're having a computer glitch, but we're not going to worry about it. We thought about changing computers. I'll explain the glitch to you. I have a computer here that has the PowerPoint, and it's got a wonderful tool called Presenter View. It's one of my secrets. The reason it's wonderful is normally when you do a PowerPoint, um, you all see the PowerPoint up there, and your normal computer screen just has the same thing that you have up there. But this program called Presenter View, as it works on, a, on an Apple computer, not, it kind of reduces the screen down. It puts a digital clock in one corner so you know how long you're going and can pace yourself. It has the screen that everybody sees so you see what's up there. It has a little box down below it where you can put notes that y'all don't see, but I see. You think I memorized all these scriptures? <laughs> and then it's got another little rectangle where it's got the slide we just saw the slide that we're seeing now, and the slide that is to come. And so I'm able to speak without notes, it looks like, because I have them all there, except for this morning. <laughs> Presenter view is not working this morning, so what I see is what you see, which means I've got to try and remember what the next slide is, and I need to try and remember the scriptures. <clears throat> so, Howard, shall we pray again? <laughs> Let's start with uh, the giveaways. Um, Becky and I cannot use our baseball tickets today. Uh, the game does not start, I mean, starts at 105, so you may miss the start, but we have four seats with a parking pass. Um, uh, I would ask that uh, uh, if uh, use sensitivity on whether or not to take them. If you want them, please take them. But remember that there may be more than one person who wants them. I'm especially partial to anybody that's got a kid or so, uh, or to someone who can't afford to go to a game otherwise. Um, these are good seats. Uh, there's a parking map on the back uh, that, because this is the reserve parking. So if you're elderly and you have trouble walking after you park to a game, it's a good game for you to take. Um, although you'll have to run down the aisle maybe to get the tickets. Um, <laughs> Uh, the tickets do come um, with food, um, so all the food's provided with these. In fact, everything but the hooch, and so you don't need the hooch anyway. This is church giveaway. Um, uh, they, they do come with the soft drinks, though. Um, so there are four seats for the game. It starts at 105. You can just be a little bit late. Uh, one time I uh, grabbed Howard and a couple other guys, and we rushed out of here to get to the game, and one of uh, Constable Hickman's gentlemen found us rushing out of here on <laughs> the Beltway. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I'm their Sunday school teacher. I'm sorry I was doing what? <laughs> Today, uh, I, I will leave these tickets uh, uh, right down here uh, for someone who might like them and uh, 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 Enjoy them, please. If you need a lesson, those are easier to come by. We've got a lot of those. <laughs> Raise your hand, and uh, uh, the Cravers are back there, and, and uh, I can't see. Oh, Alan, uh, the Rigsby's, too. Uh, they can pass out lessons, so raise your hands. I'm excited about this lesson today. I'm very excited about this lesson today, and, and I'll be candid. 
I hadn't planned on teaching it until about the middle of the week. I was stuck. Uh, this was a bad week of travel for, for the Lanier household. I was uh, uh, in New York Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I had to come back here Friday briefly to do a funeral and then immediately leave and go up to D.C. where I got back last night. And so I was gone all week and I didn't take the right library with me to work on class. And, and the work in New York actually was kind of round-the-clock work anyway. So I was sitting there scratching my head, talking to the, some folks. Uh, by the way, Mike, are you in here? Where's Mike? Mike, stand up. Do you have Renee with you? Yeah. Okay, would you all stand up, please? Y'all, this is Mike Holly and his wife, Renee. They're from Odessa, Texas. They used to go to a church that was smaller than our class. <laughs> they need to know that we're warm and friendly, Okay. Mike is a new lawyer for me. He's actually practiced law. Yeah, y'all can sit down for, uh, uh, I think, since 1999. <clears throat> um, he's a Texas Tech grad, so he's got his guns up. And he's ex-Army, so he's really got his guns up. Uh, he uh, was an Army military prosecutor. In fact, the chief prosecutor for the Abu Ghraib um, prison uh, scandal, uh, sexual mess that happened over there and, and was the military's chief prosecutor They went to him because not only of his skill but his integrity and it's a real honor to have him at my law firm and also their church shopping and so uh, it's nice to have them here this morning but he was with me in New York his first day of work involved getting to the airport by seven in the morning and coming home Thursday night saying gee honey I love you and the kids sorry I don't see you anymore <laughs> um, but uh, uh, he's back so anyway I was talking to him and some others on the trip and I decided Boy, why didn't I realize I've got to teach on Eusebius? So that's what we're doing. That's him. I was fortunate enough to find a picture of him. Um, I'm not that sure it's accurate because, frankly, uh, he'd been dead about 1,600 years before they did the woodcut. But you never know. You know, if Leonardo da Vinci is supposed to be able to paint the, the marriage of Jesus, you know... 12, 1,300 years later, why can't these guys get the woodcut right? I did notice a few different things. Eusebius is a church historian. This is Eusebius of Caesarea. Uh, Caesarea is a town uh, uh, that uh, you can read about in the New Testament, but there are a lot of Caesareas, so you've got to be kind of careful. Uh, can you tell the root of the word Caesarea? Caesar. Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor, had about a bazillion towns named after him. So you got Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea Antioch. You got all sorts of Caesareas, lots of Caesar towns going around. This is one of the Caesar towns, and Eusebius is called Eusebius of Caesarea because you got a bunch of different Eusebiuses too. In fact, at this time, you've got not only Eusebius of Caesarea, but Eusebius of Macadamia who is the Eusebius that baptized Constantine, by the way. Different Eusebius. But uh, Eusebius of Caesarea is the bishop that we're going to study today. We're going to study him because he is a writer extraordinaire. He lived from about 260 to about 340 or so and wrote more than anybody else we know about during that day. Pagan or Christian. I mean, this guy was riding out the wazoo. In fact, I don't think that picture is totally accurate because I think he probably kept another quill tucked away in his ear just in case the one he was riding with failed. 
So that is not my effort at Yankee Doodle. Stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni. That is actually uh, 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 your memory, visual memory device for Eusebius of Caesarea, the writer. He wrote the biography on Constantine called Life of Constantine. He wrote uh, commentaries. He wrote uh, sermons. He wrote, uh, this is the Onomasticon of Eusebius, or actually the Onomasticon by Eusebius of Caesarea. And uh, what it is is a Bible dictionary. He wrote a Bible dictionary. He wrote an atlas of places and names for the Bible stuff. He did all of this stuff in the 300s. And we've got tons of his writings today. The one that we especially have focused on already and will focus on today is his 10-volume church history. We know that he'd written the first seven volumes by about 300 A.D. We know that he finished the 10th volume by 324, which is the year before the council at Nicaea that we studied last week. Eusebius actually attended the Council of Nicaea. He'd have probably put it into his history if he had uh, still been writing it. But he'd already finished his church history. Now, I'm not going to go through the church history book with you and look at all of the different things he says about church history because we've already been studying those things. We've studied church history and during this class, the 19 weeks we've now had it, counting today, We've actually quoted Eusebius many times because he's the oldest authority we've got. If you want to buy a copy of his book, this is the one I recommend. It's by Paul Mayer, and uh, I've got a copy here. You can get it off of Amazon.com. I checked yesterday at Grapevine. They do not have this edition. But this is a very recent publication of it. Uh, uh, I've got the reference in your written materials if you want to buy one. It, uh, let's see if it says how much it was. Now it must have been free. It doesn't have a price tag. Um, but uh, you, you, uh, it makes a good gift. If you're interested in church history and reading it, this is very, very readable. It comes with pictures that, that show different things, and, and I strongly recommend this edition. There are old editions that are so hard to read that they will put you to sleep. So if you take Ambien or need some help going to sleep, buy those. But if you want to be awake while you read it, this is an excellent edition I recommend. Eusebius was a writer, and he's important to us as a writer. Whoops, get that feather back up there. He's important to us as a writer, but he was so much more and he, than just a writer. And his importance to us today is more than it's just a writer. Let me try to show it. Do you see that? Let me make it bigger. Huh, there we go. Eusebius was more important than just a writer because he was a meticulous um, recorder of what other people had written. When you write, uh, how many of y'all remember those English term papers we had to write? Okay, those were horrible, weren't they? Okay. They were really horrible. Our research papers. Did y'all have to write a research paper ever? Do you remember when you wrote a research paper, the hardest chore, one of my high school daughters is in here. Yeah, that's true. An English teacher here had to read them. Um, we have no mercy on you. Um, the, uh, uh, my high school daughter um, is sitting next to my mom and grandma. Would y'all plug her ears for just a moment? This, she doesn't need to hear this. Weren't you tempted when you had to write that? 
just to get all of these different sources and go ahead and just kind of quote them, but not quote them because you didn't want to have to. I mean, you could have just made it like one exhaustive quote. And so you think, well, I guess I have to kind of change the wording a little bit so I don't have to put it all in quotation marks. And you'd sit there and try to change the wording. And then you'd have to footnote. Did you, am I the only one? Okay. Well, I tell you, Eusebius had this one wired. He had no qualms about quoting. He'll quote for pages and pages. And he's meticulous about saying who he's quoting from. So in Eusebius, we actually have some documents that we wouldn't have otherwise because they've disappeared. And so church scholars can study Eusebius, and you can read Eusebius not only for what he says, but for who he quotes, who he records. Because he'll go on and on with uh, different things that he recorded. Now, I'll ask you the question, where did Eusebius get his material to do this? This is a, a map of, of Israel's area. That star right there in the lower star is Jerusalem there by the Dead Sea. If you go up to Antipatris, 38 miles, uh, veer right at the Y and go up another 26 miles, you go to Caesarea Maritima, which is the Caesarea that uh, uh, um, Eusebius is from. Um, this is a picture of how it would look today, how it should look today. Uh, it's a very recent picture. It's now in ruins. Um, these are some more of the ruins. Uh, 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 those are kids are actually real, and uh, they're not ruined. Um, but the, the rest of it is, and it's a wonderful place to go tour. I do believe, if, and Debbie's not here, but I believe if you go on the... Uh, church History Literacy Israel Tour that you get to go there uh, this October. Um, now, he got his material probably there in Caesarea where he lived. This is an artist's reconstruction of how Caesarea would have looked at the time. It was a very important place. It's where Pilate actually had his headquarters. It's where uh, you remember when Paul gets arrested in Acts and Paul makes his appeal to Rome. First they send him to Festus and Agrippa. That happens here at Caesarea. Caesarea had this jetty or this uh, artificial harbor that was built out. And this whole uh, uh, area had been built by Herod and others. And it was a spectacular city of marble and stone. Um, if you look real close, you'll see that building. That's Origen's Christian Library at Caesarea. Origen from Alexandria when he got kind of booted out, went to Caesarea and he set up and he had perhaps the best library of any early Christians. This is Origen in the 250s. So Origen has his library at Caesarea and that's probably where Eusebius got most of his materials. Now because it is a library, you've got to not only be quiet, but it's a Christian library. And so it was subject to being seized by the government during the fits of, uh, of persecution. Uh, but somehow the Christians managed to keep the libraries existent quiet enough to where the books were there and Eusebius had at his disposal a vast array of writings which he used. Eusebius then of Caesarea, you need to know he was a brilliant linguist. When he'd find something in Syriac, he'd translate it into Greek. When he'd find something in Hebrew, he'd translate it into Greek. So you've got this prolific writer, a brilliant man, access to a great library. He's a brilliant linguist. He is the bishop. That means he can check things out of the library without a card because he's like 
Lord High Muckety Muck of that whole area's church, okay? He's got access, open access, to everything that's there. He's also a consultant to Constantine over his lifetime. So, for example, his life of Constantine is not something that he wrote from a bunch of different sources. It comes from a bunch of conversations with Constantine himself. It was Eusebius who wrote about Constantine's vision of the cross and Christ saying, in this cross you'll conquer at the Maximian uh, Bridge uh, uh, in 312 when Constantine was about to go into battle and arguably had a conversion experience there. So Eusebius is, is a, a, a critical guy for us to look at. But let me tell you how I want to look at him. I want to ask this question. What did a bishop in 300 A.D. think about Jesus and the Bible? This, what did a bishop, 200 years after the death of John, the last apostle, what did a major leader, major thinker in the church think about Jesus and the Bible? You can read Eusebius for church history, and I applaud you for doing it. Um, I do, okay? But I don't want to focus as much on the church history. So I've pulled the book out. I've got to the table of contents. And we're going to, in the table of contents, look at book one of the ten volumes, The Person and Work of Christ. Because Eusebius said, if you're going to understand the history of the church, you must first understand the foundation of the church, which is Jesus. So his entire first book talks about who Jesus was, what the Bible says about Jesus, and he answers questions of critics. And I want us to focus there because we're going to see what went on in the mind and the life and the experience of a teacher in the church in 300 A.D. To me, it's fascinating. Some of the questions he answers are questions you have asked me. Is John Adams here? He leaves. Okay, one of the questions John Adams asked me after class, Eusebius answers, and he's not here. You know, that just goes to show you. <laughs> When I was growing up, if we ever wanted to bring someone to church, the one Sunday we could bring them to church was always when it was a money sermon. <laughs> it just works that way. Um, anyway, the person and work of Christ. We will take a moment and look through the rest of the book so you got an idea if you want to put it on your shopping list for Father's Day. Uh, chapter 2 is on the apostles. That's where we got some of the information of what happened to a number of the apostles where we don't get the data in the, the Bible itself. Uh, we've used for one of our historical sources, Eusebius. Book three, missions and persecutions. Uh, he talks about those, bishops, writings, and martyrdoms. Book five, the Western heroes and the Eastern heretics. <laughs> you can tell which one he was partial to. Book six, origin and the atrocities at Alexandria. We've actually covered all of this material, though we've covered it from independent sources sometimes using Eusebius where we need to. But uh, the only guy that we haven't really covered is Dionysius and the descent. Dionysius was a bishop in Alexandria, and I'm going to look long and hard if I decide we blew it by not covering him. He was in the 240 to 280 range. We may go back and pick him up next week. Uh, I don't know. Pray about it. I'll pray about it or read the book. Um, the Great Persecution, he talks about uh, that. We've talked about it here. The Deliverance, Constantine, and Peace. And that's the way he ends his book on church history. So with that, let's start with the person and work of Christ. He begins by talking about the very nature of Christ. You guys are walking in at just like the right time. 
This whole 15 minutes has been introduction. You are going to be so plugged in. It's going to really be a treat. <laughs> we'll give them a minute to uh, get adjusted here. Um, those are the guys. That means they were singing in the second service, and the singing's now over, and Scott's going to deliver a great sermon where he talks about church history and the need to learn it. <clears throat> All right, we've got everybody settled. The nature of Christ. Here's what it is, new folks. What did a teacher, a major teacher, the major writer, a major theologian of the church in 300 believe about Jesus and Scripture? Well, first of all, he says, as far as Jesus Christ, the head of Christ, or Christ is like the head of the body in that he's up in the heavens. He's regarded as God. Just as the head of the body is the top of the body, Christ as the head of the body is in heaven himself. We regard him as God. He says, yet comparable to the feet of a human being, Christ put on humanity for our sake. So he says, Christ in essence is in heaven and on earth together. He's God and he's man. This was not something, sorry Dan Brown, that was dreamed up at the Council of Nicaea. This is something that's being taught 25 years earlier by the Bishop of Caesarea. And if you had gone to hear one of his sermons, it's likely on a Sunday morning, if you'd been at that church, he'd have stood up and said, let me tell you about the nature of Christ. Christ is like a human being in this sense. His head is at the top. That reminds you that he's God because his head is in the heavens, but his feet are on earth and he walks where we walk and he knows what we go through. He has put on humanity. And that would be one of his sermons. Um, in addition to this, he'll tell you that Christ existed before anybody or anything. He was pre-existent. He says, now I can't tell you all of this in great details. Because as Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 8, who can declare his generation or the starting of Christ? Who can declare where he began? Nobody. We don't have answers to how God started. He says, so while I can't give you full answers about how God started, I can tell you that Jesus Christ was creator with God. It wasn't God who made, it's God and Christ who made. And he quotes John 1, 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then he goes to verse 14. All things were made by Him, by the Word, by Jesus. And apart, that should be from Him, not form Him, sorry. Apart from Him, nothing was made. So he says, we know Jesus preexisted. It's Jesus who made with God. And then Eusebius would send you to Genesis. 126, and he said, where God says, let us make man in our image, our image, let us, he says, that's God talking with Jesus. That's, that's the co-creators. That's God within God speaking. And that was uh, the way he would teach it. So he would tell you that Christ is creator, that Christ is God in, in the sense of his head is in heaven. He's man in the sense that his feet are on earth. What else would he say? He would say that Christ actually came to earth before he was born as Jesus. Okay? Big theological word for this is a theophany. 
the idea that Jesus Christ came to earth before he was incarnated as Jesus himself. And here's where he would send you. That is not the oak of Mamre, but we're going to pretend it is. Because that, the oak of Mamre is where Abraham was when he found out about Sodom and Gomorrah about to get blazed. And if you read the scripture, Abraham says, O Lord, judge of all the world, will you not do justice? And this is where he barters with God in essence. And, and Eusebius would tell you that God the Father did not put on human flesh here or did not make an appearance here. The appearance would have been Jesus, his son, who would have done the appearance and had the conversation. But who, it has to be, it can't just be an angel, he says, because when it's an angel, they say it's an angel. So he says, this is the Lord appearing. This is Jesus Christ. He says it didn't only happen there. Um, it also happened, let me go back to that picture. He says it also happened with Moses in the burning bush. He says it also happened with Jacob at the fords of the Jabbok when he wrestled with God. It also happened uh, 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 in countless other times. And so he gives these as scriptural examples of Jesus Christ. Um, now, he says some people will ask, why did God wait so long to send Jesus and reveal him as Jesus to the world and die for our sins? Have you ever asked that question? Oh, come on. I have. I've had my kids ask me. Have you never asked the question, gee, why did God wait until 2 B.C. to send Jesus to die for us? Why didn't he just do it like right there out of the garden? Bam, get it done. Maybe could have stopped the whole Cain and Abel thing. Well, he asked that question. I should say he asked it, but he answers it. He says, now some people will want to know this. He says, let me explain it to you. He says, when the fall happened, man so fell from God and became so utterly depraved in the past, humanity was not capable of grasping the teaching of Christ in all its wisdom and virtue. He says man was brutal, man was murderous, man was wicked, man was evil. Man could no more have grasped what Jesus was doing and the life of Jesus and the meaning of it than the man in the moon. Humanity was not ready for Christ. And that's why Christ did not come then. He says, uh, instead, God would have to send floods and, and all these other things. He said, if you go back and look historically, man didn't know anything about philosophy. Man didn't know anything about art. Man didn't know anything about civic duty. Man didn't know anything about uh, community. Man didn't know anything about caring and love. He says, mankind was an absolute uh, uh, cesspool of depravity. And uh, uh, he says, so God has to kind of get them ready. And he says, and then what happened over time, God found a people who had sprung from the seeds of true religion. I failed to end the quote there, but that's what he said. The seeds of true religion, these were the Jews. And he says, in Abraham, who was willing to step out in faith when God called him from Ur, that man and his descendants had sprung from the seeds of true religion, had enough devotion, had enough attention to God to where God could come into that nation and into those people 
and sow his kingdom. And the way God did it is through images and symbols and through the law that he gave to Moses. And so God is getting humanity ready for Christ once he found the people that were pure enough and and would seek God enough to where God's plan could be brought to fruition. So God comes to those people and he speaks in images and symbols. I threw some up here. Actually, that's the Hebrew alphabet. I couldn't think of anything else. And it looks like an image. And they used Hebrew anyway, so I thought, you know, it's kind of a win-win picture. Um, God spoke through images and symbols. Here's an example. As the law and symbols penetrated everywhere like a fragrant breeze, brutality was changed into mildness. So that profound peace, friendship, and easy communication prevailed. See, he says, God puts the images, he puts the symbols there, he puts the law there, and people start transforming. And things start to get into a position where Jesus can come. Here's the examples of the images. He says, for example, the name Jesus Christ, that's given in the Old Testament. He says, we knew the name Jesus Christ from then. Remember in Greek, the word Christ is the word for anointed, right? You're you're reading along and you just read the word anointed. It's going to be in the Greek Christos. It's Christ. Jesus is Jesus the anointed or Jesus the Messiah, which is the Hebrew for anointed as well. Okay? Mashiach is the Hebrew for anointed. So Jesus, Hamashiach, Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Messiah in Hebrew. Greek, it's Yesu Christos. Jesus, the anointed. So what, what uh, uh, Eusebius does, Eusebius has a Greek Old Testament. And every time he sees the word anointed, he reads the word Christ. Right? So he says, for example, go to Leviticus. In Leviticus, God says to Moses, you make these images and these symbols exactly the way they're shown to you. Because they have a greater importance than just what the guy's going to look like when he's walking around. Because the high priest is Christ. That's the way it reads in the Greek Old Testament. The high priest is anointed, is the way ours translates it. But for him, he's reading Christ. So he says, Moses considers the high priest Christ. He says, how about this? Jesus in Hebrew is Joshua. We call it Joshua. It's Yehoshua in Hebrew. Okay? Jesus is the Greek form. We read Jesus because our New Testament's written in Greek. But when Jesus is walking around, all of the Jewish disciples, his mother, his father, they do not call him Jesus. Yehoshua. Joshua is the name that we have for that in English. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, if you go back to Numbers, Joshua was not his original name. His parents named him Hoshua which is just salvation. It is Moses who called him Joshua. Yehoshua. Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. So what, you know, and and you got him, you you got Eusebius reading his Old Testament, and it just says, you know, Jesus. Moses changed Hoshua's name to Jesus. And Eusebius says, do you realize that Moses takes the two most important people, the high priest, and the man who will lead the people, 
And together, we have Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Not that it's the person Jesus, but it's the symbol. It's the image. So that when Jesus comes, it would ring a bell to a good Jew that this is the fulfillment of all Moses put into motion. Next question he had to deal with. Was Christianity a new faith? You know, people had been around for a long time. If this God's legit and this faith is legit, why is it so new? Where was he? To this, uh, Eusebius would tell you, and he'd preach a sermon on this. Is Jesus, is our Christianity a new faith? Did God just not appear for a long time? He says, no, 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 we're actually old. We're older than all the Jews. Don't let them call us this. We predated Judaism because Judaism arguably started when Abraham was circumcised. But before Abraham was circumcised, God said his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Circumcision to Eusebius represented another symbol and an image of the, that God gave, along with the, the law and so many other things. And so for, for Eusebius, he says, Abraham, before he got the images and the symbols, before he got the Old Testament covenant stuff, he was already, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness, and that's how we're saved, through faith. So our faith, our religion, our belief system predates Judaism. Um, it's not a new faith at all. He says, well, what about the differing genealogies? Why, who's ever noticed there's a different genealogy in Matthew than there is in Luke for Jesus? Anybody ever notice? Anybody satisfied with the answer that's in your brain right now on that? Let me give you Eusebius' answer. And in this, he quotes from a uh, guy about 100 years earlier, Julius Africanus. So the source for this is not 300, it's actually 200 A.D., ultimately. He says, you just got to remember... Who, who remembers Ruth? Old Testament book of Ruth, right? If, uh, if uh, you know, lineage for the Jews passed through the woman, not through the man. Um, so, so if a, a woman's husband dies and she doesn't have a child to pass on her heritage and her, the estate, the family land, the next of kin steps in and marries the woman, right? To produce an offspring. The offspring is not the next of kin's. The offspring belongs to the woman and receives the inheritance that belonged to that family unit. And that's what happens with uh, 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 the, the Ruth story um, with Boaz. And, and we know that, right? I mean, it's set out in the law. You, everybody's up on that. If not this may be meaningless. But if you are, he says this is a very simple explanation that everybody knows. He says both Matthew and Luke recognize Jesus as from King David. But what Matthew does is Matthew goes through Methan as the father. Methan is who married Esther. And Methan marries Esther and Methan dies. And so Esther then marries the next of kin, Melchi. Melchi is who Luke's got through his lineage. All of them had descended from David. But Methan and Esther had Jacob, whereas Esther and Melchi had Heli. And those are the two children. Jacob is considered the natural father. Heli is the legal father. 
and those are the fathers of Joseph. So one of the fathers of Joseph is the, the, the lineage father that you've got to have for property purposes. That's the legal father. So that Joseph inherits the land he was supposed to from his mother. But the other one is the father that's the genetic DNA father. Because that's the genetic DNA father that had to step in as the next of kin to produce offspring for his predeceased brother. Does that make sense? And he says, he says, you know, if you got any doubts, he said, first of all, look at the language. He says, when Matthew writes, Matthew says, begat, begat. He begat, he begat, he begat. Matthew begat Jacob. Jacob begat Joseph. Begat means was the father in the birthing process. He says when Luke gives the account, Luke doesn't go through who begat who. He talks about who's the legal son of. He just says son of, son of, son of, which is the legal way of talking about who's the legal parent. So Luke charts the legal lineage of Jesus, whereas Matthew charts the physical. And it's interesting also because Eusebius says, if you'll recall, Herod the Great was responsible for burning a bunch of the uh, genealogy records that were kept in the temple because they would not support him being Herod the Great. And in the process of burning those, he burned a lot, but he said most people kept their own copies anyway. And he says, we've got copies of the lineages that show all of this, as he quotes Julius Africanus on this. And says, uh, the family's known it. This is well known. This is why this has never been an issue before in the church. You think the church is so stupid that they would have had scriptures where you have one lineage that directly contradicts another. Of course they wouldn't. So that's the explanation. Uh, by the way, to me, that's still the best explanation of those scriptures. I don't, I don't think we've done any better. A couple of interesting ads that you get from uh, Eusebius uh, that you don't get from some other places when you talk about Christ. First of all, uh, Herod is really, Herod the Great's uh, for him, Herod the Not-So-Great. Uh, as, uh, um, as Eusebius recounts Herod slaying all of the innocent children under the age of two out of fear that the Messiah was being born in Bethlehem, uh, it is Eusebius who says this is why uh, uh, Herod got so sick and died in such a disgusting way. Uh, as Eusebius says, it was, it was a way to sort of get him used to what he's going to get in the afterlife. Um, it's an interesting spin. Um, John the Baptist... He talks about John the Baptist and he adds, he being Eusebius, adds some information from Josephus. Now Josephus, Scott referenced Josephus this morning. Josephus was a Jewish historian who wrote in the 70 era. Josephus was originally one of the people fighting against Titus when, when Jerusalem and the Jews re revolted in 68 to 70 AD. But he quickly like flipped and, and realized they were losing and he didn't want to die. So he's kind of hitched on to the Romans, and he wrote a history of the Jews. And uh, we've got copies of it. In fact, Mayer himself has translated a great set of it. But uh, in the process of writing the history of the Jews, Eusebius had copies of Josephus as well. And so Eusebius quotes, this is long, but this is interesting, so I throw it up here. This is Eusebius quoting Josephus, 70 AD, history of the Jews. About this time lived Jesus a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was the achiever of extraordinary deeds and was the teacher of those who accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. 
He was the anointed, the Messiah. When he was indicted by the principal men among us and Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him originally did not cease to do so, for he appeared to them on the third day, restored to life, as the prophets of the deity had foretold these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. Now that's the way, that's the way Josephus is quoted by Eusebius. And we've got copies of Josephus still today that have this material. Scholars have looked at that and said, Josephus wasn't a Christian. He couldn't have written all of that the way it did. Uh, some of it clearly has been added by Christians along the way to kind of kick the story up a notch. And the language that, that scholars believe was added is what I've put here in italics. If indeed one ought to call him a man, he was the Messiah, he appeared to them on the third day restored to life, and marvelous for the things. If you take that language out, you still have an incredible attestment of the Christian faith from a Jew, a non-Christian, at 70 AD. You still have about this time lived Jesus, a wise man. He was the achiever of extraordinary deeds, teachers of those who accept the truth gladly, won over many Jews and many of the Greeks, when he was indicted by the principal men among us, Pilate condemned him to be crucified. Those who had come to love him originally didn't cease to do so. For as the prophets of the deity have foretold these and countless other things about him, and the tribe of Christians so named after him has not disappeared to this day. Okay. Um, uh, I can tell you in about 1975, scholars found a Syriac version. I believe it was Syriac, a version of Josephus that dates way, way, way back. And uh, it actually is Josephus without these italicized parts, which lends credibility to the scholastic understanding of how, how Josephus may have actually written in 70 AD. But this is written about Jesus by a non-believer just 40 years after the crucifixion. And uh, uh, Eusebius is, adds that in his book. Um, another interesting ad of history, and with this, we'll, this is my last ad, and then we'll, we'll close with the points for home. Uh, King Abgar of Edessa... Uh, Edessa is right here. It's up north of Antioch into modern Turkey. This would be Jerusalem down here. There's Caesarea. Jerusalem would be here. Edessa is up there. According to, uh, according to uh, uh, Josephus, the king of Edessa was sick and he sent a letter to Christ while Christ was living. Um, here's what the letter says. And, and, and Josephus said, I mean, Eusebius says, you know, I'm translating the letter myself into Greek for you, uh, but I've actually seen the letter. It's on file there at the courthouse in Edessa if anybody wants to go read it. All right? He says, Abgar, the Topark, the king, to Jesus, the excellent Savior who has appeared in the region of Jerusalem, greeting, I've heard about you and the cures you accomplish without drugs and herbs. Word has it, you make the blind see, the lame walk, you heal lepers, you cast out unclean spirits and demons, you cure those tortured by chronic disease and raise the dead. When I heard all these things about you, I decided one of two things is true. Either you are God and came down from heaven to do these things, or you're God's son for doing them. For this reason, I'm writing to beg you to take the trouble to come to me and heal my suffering. I've also heard that the Jews are murmuring against you and plot to harm you. Now, my city-state's very small, but highly regarded and adequate for both of us. <laughs> also on file in the records, official records of Edessa at the time that uh, Eusebius is writing, 
is the response that Jesus sent. Blessed are you who believed in me without seeing me. For it's written that those who have seen me will not believe in me and that those who have not seen me will believe and live. Now regarding your request that I come to you, I must first complete all that I was sent to do here and once that's completed must be taken up to the one who sent me. When I've been taken up, I'll send one of my disciples to heal your suffering and bring life to you and yours. And then I'm reading now at Eusebius. Eusebius says, the following is appended to these letters in Syriac, okay, which means this is an add-on to the letters. After the ascension of Jesus, Judas, who is called Thomas, that's not Judas Iscariot, sent Thaddeus, one of the 70, to Abgar. He stayed with Tobias, son of Tobias. When Abgar heard Thaddeus was healing every disease and weakness, he suspected he was the one about whom Jesus had written. He therefore ordered Tobias to bring Thaddeus to him. Tobias said to Thaddeus, The king Abgar has instructed me to bring you to him so you can heal him. Heal him. Thaddeus said, I'll go since I've been sent to him with power. Tobias rose early the next morning, took Thaddeus to see Abgar, surrounded by his nobility. When they arrived, Abgar saw a marvelous vision on the face of Thaddeus, bowed down to him saying, Are you really a disciple of Jesus, the Son of God, who wrote to me and said, I'm going to send you one of my disciples to heal you and give you life? Thaddeus replied, I was sent to you for this reason. If you believe in him, your prayers will be answered in proportion to your faith. King, I believed in him so firmly, I wanted to take an army and destroy the Jews who crucified him had I not been prevented by Roman power. Thaddeus, our Lord has fulfilled the will of his father. After fulfilling it, he's been taken up to the father. King, I too believed in him and in his father. Thaddeus, for this reason, I put my hand on you in his name. When he did this, Abgar was immediately cured without drugs and herbs, just as in the healings of Jesus. Abdus uh, fell at Thaddeus' feet, was similarly cured of his gout. Many other fellow citizens of theirs were healed. Abgar then asked Thaddeus for further information about Jesus. Thaddeus replied, assemble all your citizens tomorrow. I'll tell them about the second coming of Jesus, or the coming of Jesus and his mission, the Father's purpose in sending him, his deeds, power, preaching, his humility that made light of his divinity, how he was crucified and raised from the dead, descending to Hades, but ascending with a multitude to the Father. And uh, yeah, that's a pretty good sermon. Um, we don't know if that's true. You know, this is what Eusebius wrote down. Um, uh, I think all scholars would agree those letters were there by the time, but were they authentic letters? We don't know. Uh, I can tell you this, though, that the church had a very early start in Edessa. Uh, that's outside the Roman Empire. And the church had a very early start there. We don't know historically when it started, but if you had gone to the Edessans back then, they had New Testament scriptures by this point in time also. They'd already translated them into Syriac. And uh, it's, it's an interesting aspect of the church that we don't see that much because it wasn't part of the Roman Empire, but it was there. Points for home. Uh, these I, I'm sure of. These are authentic. Uh, uh, that I can tell you uh, would not surprise me to be true. We get to heaven and find out. But this I know. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. And Jesus was God's plan for us before the foundation of the world. We're like Abgar, except I can confidently say Jesus says, I will come to you. I will come to you. And if he doesn't heal your disease physically on this earth, he will heal it eternally. And not just your physical diseases, but your emotional ones and your spiritual ones. And that I can promise you. 
I can also tell you that our faith in scriptures are rooted in real events in real history. We just live a few thousand years too late to see it. But it was there. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus that you descended to earth, that you did not remain merely in, in heaven, but, but put on humanity and walked this planet, that you minister to us daily, that you've made provision for us eternally. We are honored to be your children. We are devoted to you. In Jesus we pray, amen.